I'm so thankful to be here with you and um, to, to be able to continue this passage that we have been on for a couple of weeks. And so um, thank you for your patience. And I, I have to say a couple of quick things. Um, one is that um, I didn't intend for a part three. Um, but you know that some passages just require so much, so much time and energy to do justice to it. And that's where I am. Um, I want to give you a quick, very quick personal update on my health because people have been praying for me and asking. Um, by the Lord's grace, I got good results from the biopsies that were taken. And I'm so thankful for that because it was a worry and a concern. Um, and um, the scopes came back good as well. Uh, and yet, um, still having some flare-ups um, from eating. And I don't know why. And the doctor says he, he noticed some things, but he's not sure exactly the reason, which may mean more tests. I don't know. But I'm just asking for your continued prayers and at the same time to give thanks to God for what we have been able to rule out, which I wanted you to know um, so that you can continue to pray and give thanks for me. Um, Eric jokingly said, so, is there going to be a part four? <laughs> and he jokingly looked at me and he said, you know, I've already got the slide made. <laughs> I'm like, um, hopefully not. No thanks. You know, I, I'm not looking to extend it further, but um, there's no agenda here. Um, I just want you to know that as a church, and as your pastors and elders, we want to be as faithful to teaching the Scriptures as genuinely and honestly as uh, we can. Um, so seriously, this is where we are. We're in First Timothy, and we're at this passage. And it's so important to hear and to process and not skip as a sola scriptura kind of church. As a church that says, our foundation is God's Word. Not Time Magazine, and not CNN, and not Fox News. It's God's Word. That's where our authority is. And so, you know, I, want, I, I was telling Eric this. It's like, even as I try to look for, you know, notes and commentaries and stuff, I see a lot of churches that skip this passage in their preaching sections. But this is where we are. And, and I want to say personally... It was so important to me, even as somebody who finds preaching very hard, I tell people it feels like giving birth, which is painful, but glorious at the same time. But that's what preaching feels like to me. It doesn't come easy. I know for some people they are so good at it, and it comes naturally that they can prepare Saturday night. Charles Spurgeon used to do that, I think. He used to know the Scripture so well, he can come up with thoughts that quickly and be able to preach and, and fill the stadium or the church. But anyway, I just felt that it was so important to do justice by taking some time to unfold this in the way that it needs to. To men and to women alike, in understanding what's the godly conduct that God desires for us in the assembly of God's people, in worship especially, what does God want from us? 
And so please pray for me and with me. So let's pray first, okay? Because I stand here somewhat trembling and recognizing it's a hard passage and it's difficult as it falls on not just women, but on men. And even me as your pastor, because I love you all equally. And so does Pastor Jeff and all our officers. So pray for me and with me. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Thank you for First Timothy. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who loved Timothy as a son in the faith and wanted to instruct him even the hard things and to say, this is the way to go. Follow Jesus. Follow the law. Follow the Scriptures. And so Lord, my prayer is that You would enlarge our vision of Yourself. Give us eyes to see Your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is so gentle and lowly in heart and so filled with grace and truth at the same time. So Father, give us the knowledge of Your Word. Forgive us where we make mistakes and go off track and do our own thing. But Lord, draw us back by Your grace and Your mercy, which is more as we sang. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've got to kind of go quickly because I really don't want to have a part four. So, but let me say this. These are the points that I started off three weeks ago with. One is the conduct for godly worship. Godly uh, people who are in the household of faith, which is the church of God. First, it's about prayer. And it was mostly directed towards men. Men, you need to step up in your leadership, in the home, and consequently in the church, and to lead in prayer. Why? Because it's a hard thing to do. Praying is not easy. It wasn't easy for the Lord Jesus. And we are given the task to step up and lead in prayer. And I ask, do you do it in your homes? Do you do it with your spouses? Do you do it with your children? And then you'll be able to do it even in church. Listen, we have a regular gathering for kingdom prayer now. Men, especially, hear me on this. This is the remedy to stand against evil, is to pray much and to have our foundation in saying, God, I am weak, but you are strong. Join us Wednesday nights. Bring your wives. Bring your older children. Secondly, about dressing and adornment. And that was mainly geared or, or addressed towards women. But I think it's really applicable to all of us as we think about what are we adorning ourselves with? Are we idolizing our appearance? Are we trying to create factions by showing who we are, what we've got against other sections of the church who may not have as much? Fourthly, about teaching, I mean, thirdly, about learning and discipleship. We talked about that last week, and I will touch on it briefly today. And fourthly, about teaching and authority. And that is the main section or the main verse, verse 11 and 12, 12 especially. And then five, I wanted to give you some common object, objections against what we call complementarian model that God shows us through the scriptures. I said that week one. When God created Adam and Eve, He created them in an order to complement one another because that's God's design. Not randomly, but by design. And they are meant to complement each other so that it reflects, hear it again, Jesus 
and the church. That is the finest illustration that we are given. It's to reflect Jesus and the church. And so there are common objections to complementarianism. And the opposite is a term that we call egalitarian, which means there's no distinctions. There's no differences. Everyone can do what the other can do, men and women equally. But is that biblical? And that's really what I aim to present to you with. It's God's Word. Believe me, I am not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God Himself. And He will enlighten you. And He will speak to your hearts. And He will nudge you. And He will convict you. Your, your goal is to follow Him. Okay? Not just some human voice. So let me jump in here. The first thing is learning in discipleship. And this is what it said. Let a woman learn quietly and with entire or all submissiveness. Remember we talked about this last week? And so there are words there, particularly three that may bother us, even the men in the church. Like, what does it mean quietly? What does it mean with all submissiveness? Well, it means that there is a purpose for men and women and particularly in their roles in being biblical women and biblical men. And there is a call to us for godly living that means that there needs to be a respectful, humble submission and heart posture. But don't miss, as I said last week, one of the greatest blessings in this verse, which is, Paul saying, let a woman learn. Let her be a disciple as Jesus loved women and wanted them to be His disciples. There were so many women in Jesus' life. Who did Jesus appear to first after He rose again? A woman. And they were the ones who loved Him and cared for Him and provided for Him. And so also in Paul's ministry, some of Paul's greatest supporters were women who loved the gospel and received it from Paul and wanted to support his ministry and followed him. And Paul even said, you in this quadrant, you need to be a core disciple like Lydia and Priscilla who he had respect and esteem for. But I want to say this so that we can jump into point four. The Apostle Paul does not mean women cannot speak. It doesn't mean that you can't speak in the church. You're supposed to stay quiet. You can't interact. You, can, you, you gotta let only, you know, the, 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 the men in the church talk. That is not at all what he's saying here. Ladies, you can most definitely interact and talk in the corporate gathering, but there does need to be an attitude of a quiet posture, a respectful posture. Remember the picture of marriage when Paul talks in Ephesians 5, which we can't do away with. I'll come back to that. But he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, honor and respect. And in that way, submit to your husbands as the bride of Christ, the church is supposed to be towards Christ. That's the model. It's meant to be good for us because that's God's design for us. Hey, listen, I don't like everything that's in the Bible. It's hard. 
I also don't like gas prices. <laughs> there are times when I thought, why can't I just pour a two-liter bottle of Coke into the car? It'll be cheaper than gas. Well, you know what will happen. It won't take long before your car starts stalling and your engine blows up. You can't. wasn't designed for that. wasn't made for a bottle of Coke or whatever concoction you come up with. It needs gas or whatever your car is made for. So I want you to just hear this. Women in Paul's teaching here are called to be respectful learners, learning with a humble and submissive heart posture. And the word quiet comes up several times. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And 12, I do not permit a woman to, to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. There's that word again. We'll come back to 12, but I want to just highlight, what does that word quiet mean? Well, literally, it means contemplative. Prayerful, still, thoughtful, respectful. And so, ladies, don't ever think that you're meant to not say anything. We are co-heirs in the kingdom of God and in the inheritance that God has prepared for us. Well, I've got to move to the fourth point. Here in verses 12 to 15, we begin to see... Um, what Paul outlines as what is allowed and not allowed, particularly when it comes to teaching. And so verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet, right? And I just highlighted quiet. Well, here's one thing I want you to hear. In the corporate gathering, God is saying through the Apostle Paul, inspiring Paul to write this as his as God's own word it's forbidding the exercise of authority over men and that includes most of all teaching where men are present and and of course it includes teaching and preaching in the local context of the church worship assemblies gathered worship times gathered people of God in the household of faith and by the way it requires wisdom to know when are certain things allowed and when aren't certain things allowed? And we have to talk as elders and look at God's Word and study again. And we got to do all those things. It's hard work. But I want you to hear this also. In the context of teaching particularly, whenever God's Word is opened up and taught, there is an authoritative aspect to that. Because it is God's Word. It isn't a novel or a story by Rudyard Kipling or something else, a, mag a magazine article. It is God's Word. And when you're exhorting, when you're teaching, when you're saying, this is what you should do, there is a sense that whenever one teaches God, the Word of God, there is an automatic level of authority that goes with it. Now, um, I've benefited from reading many commentaries, maybe too many, and um, and and. You know, friends and colleagues have uh, interacted with me in conversation and, and passed me thoughts and notes and stuff like that. It's too much. You can't possibly share all these things, but I do want to tell you something, and this is important. There is a question to be asked here. When Paul is saying, I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to exercise authority over a man. Is he saying one thing or two things? Is he prohibiting or forbidding one action or two actions? It's a very, very important question for us to consider. Maybe you have already, maybe you haven't. And I would say men and women, you need to study and ponder and process this. So let me go into that for a moment. Um, some people would say it's actually a device of language that's actually two things, two phrases that essentially mean one thing. Two ideas that mean one thing. So exercising authority, teaching. Well, that sounds like what Paul later talks about in the office of an elder. Elders are supposed to be able to teach or apt to teach is the way we would describe it. They should be able to teach from God's Word, whether it's through counseling or preaching or teaching Sunday school or one-on-one, whatever it is, they should be able to teach and also to rule. That is kind of the two marks of an elder that they, that they are, do, are to do. We're going to go into that, by the way, next week. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the diaconate and deacons and what they do as servants within the church to enable the elders to do what they're supposed to do. But going back, is this two things or one thing? So if it's one thing, here's the boiled down aspect of it. It could mean then that there's a difference between teaching that is authoritative and teaching that is not authoritative. And women may not be prohibited from teaching that is not authoritative. They may be allowed to do that. That's what some people would say because it says it's essentially one main prohibition, one idea coined by two phrases, teaching, exercising authority. Well, that would mean that if an elder, Jeff or I, or one of our elders said, well, we are given the authority of the church and we permit you as a woman, as a, as a skilled orator or teacher to be able to preach, then they can do that because the authority is giving them permission and that's considered non-authoritative teaching. Is that what the Scriptures are saying? Well, just very quickly, because this is not a le- meant to be a lecture or a Sunday school class where you have more time. I only have a limited amount of time. I want you to know that in my humble opinion and from what I have studied, from my upbringing in my own churches, but also going back to God's Word and listening to reading commentaries and other godly men, I have really come to believe that it really is two things that Paul is writing out here, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So there's a few reasons. One is that this is in many ways in the context of Timothy right in the chapter and also in the larger context of Timothy, it's meant to be something that is for all churches everywhere. In essence, a teaching that is supposed to be for everybody everywhere in the gathering of God's people as the church. And I don't think that, that it's talking about one thing, but two separate things. Moreover, when you study the language that it was written in, there's a conjunction. And that word or, or nor, 
does not usually talk about one idea, but two separate ideas, two separate things. Not trying to convey one prohibition by two phrases. That's generally how the Greek works. And actually in the Greek language, it's completely different in the order of the sentence. Even though in English they're right next to each other, in the Greek language it's actually shown to be more of a separation to show that there are two things that are being prohibited here. Thirdly, I would say, um, and I have really benefited from going back and affirming where I was before because there are commentaries even good commentaries that differ on this. The third thing is that when it talks about these two things, teaching and exercising authority, even when we get into chapter 3 where it talks about elders, it's really two functions even in Timothy. Because you can be apt to teach and able to teach and yet not be able to exercise authority yet as someone who is not made an elder or given that office yet. And so the Scriptures kind of show it in Timothy itself as two ideas. So I want you to hear that. I'm just trying to give you as much as I can so you can ponder and pray as well. It's two things that are being forbidden in a sense as God's Word or prohibited here to teach or to exercise authority. And so, in one way, it's very clear, I believe, that it says women should not be elders. Believe me, I've helped churches that believe the opposite. But when they asked me to be their pastor, I said, I'm sorry, I love you as a congregation, but I cannot take vows in your, ordin- in your ordination, in your denomination, because I don't believe that, that that's what the Scripture's teaching. And so, I do believe it's somewhat clear women should not be elders. But should women teach in the gathered context of worship when there are men present? I'm really believing that the Scriptures show us fairly clearly here through Paul's teaching in the Greek and even in the English that there are two actions that should not be done. Why? Because God designed it that way. Can I tell you very honestly, there are women who I love to listen to as I hear them teaching Bible studies and teaching children. Jay and I have a friend from our early years in ministry. I thought she was one of the most gifted orators in the PCA. But she herself would say, I'm not called to preach. I'm not called to do this in this congregational context. But yes, there are others. And by the way, I've given you some examples of women that Paul esteemed. Look at his salutations and the way he ends letters. He includes women, right? And Paul is very careful to say there are many, many ways the, the ministry and the giftings and the aptitude and the skills of women should be used. So many areas within discipleship. One, training and teaching other women. Secondly, children. Even other contexts. I'm just telling you, there's so many areas, but what we are all about here is to say, what does God want us to do? What does God say not to do? Do we dare mess with that or try to implement our own desires? What does God's Word say? 
Well, now, I, I know I'm going to run out of time again, and I said there will not be a part four. <laughs> so let me quickly mention something that I have to say. What he goes on in verses 13 to 15 is to give what I consider a foundational explanation or rationale. Hear me. A foundational explanation or rationale in verses 13 and 14 and 15. For Adam was formed first. Notice it says for, right after he talks about, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet for... Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing, childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Listen to what Paul does. He goes not just a little back, but all the way back, 4,000 years in fact, to reach back to Genesis and the creation story, and the creation order to say, here's the rationale. Here's why I would suggest this. Here's why I'm teaching this. By the way, not just for you, but for all churches everywhere that gather as God's people as the household of faith. He reaches back to Genesis as the foundational explanation and looks to the creation order. And what does he say first? Adam was for, Adam was created first. Listen, Adam was created first and it was not good for him to be alone. And so God created Eve second to be his complement and his helper. Adam was created to lead and Eve was created to respect and submit to Adam's leadership because it was his responsibility and all of this before sin even entered the picture. So God is very clearly, through the Apostle Paul, showing that it's His will for men to lead in their families and in the church, and that's how the best design is for His church to th grow and thrive and be successful in the mission that we're given. So the universal principle is how women should conduct themselves in grace and truth and beauty. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So there is an order here. Listen. Um, this is so significant. Because there is a role and distinction here. Men, and Adam in particular, was supposed to be the leader to protect and care for Eve. And she was supposed to compliment him and to help him. Not to lead. Not because she can't lead, but because God shows that that's not the optimal way. Let me quickly move on to Eve was deceived and not Adam. Well, throughout the Scriptures, if you look at the Scriptures, the fall of Adam and Eve is in many places referred to as the sin of Adam. Adam is so connected with the fall that Paul refers to him in other places like Romans 5 and writes that in Adam all sinned. All are in Adam. 
speaking about all sinners, all people being sinners. He is our head, the first man. And then he speaks of Jesus as being the second Adam, and all who are in Christ are forgiven of their sins. So first in Adam, then in the second Adam in Christ. And so where am I going with that? If Adam is credited with the sin, Paul here is also saying Eve is credited as being the one that Satan actually deceived in historical fact, in the way that it unfolded. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Listen, um, I envision that as it takes place, this is the picture. We don't know exactly. But Adam was supposed to lead. And he was supposed to be the one speaking and the one that is standing up. The serpent comes and the the serpent speaks. And where's Adam? Is Adam far away? I think when we study that story again, Eve doesn't have to go very far to turn to him and give him the fruit, right? She doesn't have to go looking all over the garden for him. It's very likely, we don't know exactly, Moses doesn't give that to us in Genesis, but it's very likely that Adam was there and that he does not take the leadership in saying, hold on here, serpent. You have no authority Here is what God has told us. Here is what we are not going to do. But instead we see Eve stepping up, Adam stepping back, right? And so we see that there is a a lack of leadership and a usurping of the role of leadership that we see with, with Eve. And what happens? Sin happens. Because the consequences are dire when God's plan is not followed. Now, I want you to know, it doesn't mean that Eve cannot lead or is not capable of leading or is not intellectual enough. She is. She can be. And it's not the case even today. But what it is saying is that she usurped a role that she should not have taken. And primarily, it was because Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do. And so I think it's good that the Scripture says the sin of Adam because there is really a lot to take in from that. Brothers and sisters who hear me, what is the Scripture doing to you as you hear all of this? Isn't it powerfully convicting that we have um, done what we've wanted to do and stepped away from what, what the Scriptures are showing us? Men are to lead with godliness, their families and their churches, because that's God's design. He made Adam first and Eve second to, to, to follow in God's good plan, right? And there's something even more here. Genesis 3.13, she, I think, Eve admits, the Lord says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She was never meant to be the one who was encountering and speaking. It was Adam. And so God, I think, very wisely teaches on this subject to us. Listen, I have to take a couple minutes to finally give you 
some of the common objections to the arguments that secularists and mainline denominations and even mainline Christians have to say here. One of them is that others would try to convince us that it is only talking about unruly women who in that time desperately desire to be heard and therefore create disunity within the church. Is it only about unruly women that Paul is giving this prohibition for? That's what many people say. Secondly, that others say that it's... It, it, others try, they make it seem as if Paul, it's just Paul's opinion and now not a command of God Himself. Thirdly, some teach that it only applies to wives and not women as a whole. Fourthly, um, and this is a significant, significant one, that it's only meant for that specific church in Ephesus and it's a temporary thing. Fifthly, that Paul was inconsistent due to Jewish, his Jewish past and cultural pressure. And so Paul is being inconsistent. And the last is that the Old Testament is, was very prohibitive. The New Testament gives more freedoms, but it's not adequate enough. And if you follow the trajectory, there should be even more freedoms now than even in the New Testament than there was even in the Old Testament. There's so much there that I can't quite unfold, but I, I, want to, I want to at least share this main one about that it was just a temporary situation. Listen, the argument is that Paul didn't mean what he seems to be saying in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, and 14. And the argument goes something like this, that when Paul puts a restriction on the roles and responsibilities of women, it's only because of that local congregation, but that is general teaching and principle that he believes that his ethic is actually egalitarian. And I mentioned this in Sermon 1. They go back to a passage... In Galatians, Galatians 3.28, they use that as their proof text and it'll, it says, if you look at that, it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And the argument is that in that passage, Paul is making clear that his guiding principle and ethic is not complementarian but egalitarian. That there's no differences really between men and women. Is that what Paul's teaching here? Can you get that from this verse? No, I just want you to know that when you look at Scripture with Scripture, like Ephesians 5, which I said, I've preached on a ton of times when I have to do weddings. It's very clear what men and women are supposed to be designed to be. They're supposed to be love language from men to women and respect language from women to men. You can't just take away Ephesians 5. You can't just do away with marriage. Paul's teachings, when you look at it all together, it would totally annihilate the definition of marriage. You can't have marriage between one man and one, one woman if this were the case. So Galatians 3.28 is misunderstood here. Paul's not talking about no differences. He is saying that God's design is to have roles that function properly within your womanhood and within your manhood so you can be your optimal best and so that the church can grow. There's books out, like even by InterVarsity Press, that highlight the objection I mentioned before. Well, the New Testament only got so far, 
And now we can go even further. It's inadequate. Well, what does that all do? My last comment, and I'll, pray, and I'll close in prayer. Brothers and sisters, listen. Ultimately, what it all shows us is an undermining of Scripture. It's having a low view of Scripture. It's not taking God at His Word. It's saying, yeah, thank you for your Word, but I also got culture, I also have tradition, I also have what our church does. What all of those objections really say is Scripture is inadequate, it's not enough for the time. We're smarter. We're more sophisticated. We know more now. And it really denigrates Scripture and puts Scripture down. What do we do when we're talking about Reformation and the marks of being a Reformed church in the principles that came out of the Reformation? It's going back to the Scriptures as it were. And highlighting the truth of God as the ultimate authority. Do you see what's at stake here? When we play with God's Word and we do what we want, you're really saying Scripture doesn't count. And we can make our own rules and regulations. And you know what will happen? So hear me. I know the children are coming in, but you need to hear this. You, like Adam and Eve, in the garden will experience a damage and a dire consequence that will lead to utter destruction if we go away from God's Word. I want to share with you something as I close. And this is from a popular author. I'm not going to mention his name. But for the sake of our time, I want to end with this just so you hear it again. By the way, do you know what is the best-selling book in all of history and even currently? It's God's Word. People have tried to not make it so. People have tried to make it secondary and not relevant and not important. Listen to this. The Bible has been banned, burned, scoffed, and ridiculed. Scholars have mocked it as foolish. Kings have branded it as illegal. A thousand times over it, the grave has been dug and the dirge has begun. But somehow the Bible never stays in the grave. Not only has it survived, it has thrived. It is still the single most popular book in all of history. It has been the best-selling book in the world for years. There's no way on earth to explain it, which perhaps is the only explanation. The answer? The Bible's durability is not found on earth or by men. It is found in heaven. For millions who have tested its claims as truths and claimed its promises, there is but one answer. The Bible is God's book and God's voice. The purpose of the Bible is to proclaim God's plan and passion to save His children. That is the reason this book has endeared through the centuries. It is the treasure map that leads us to God's highest treasure, eternal life itself. I am going to stop there. We can do a whole weekend on this or a conference or a preaching conference or whatever you want. These are just little bites for you to ponder and take in. Where do you stand on the authority of God's Word? It makes all the difference. And for us, at least so far by God's grace, 
We say we stand on God and His Word alone. Sola Scriptura. Friends, this is relevant for us. Let it convict you. It bothers me. It affects me. It affects people in my family. But God's Word is the truth. And if we are offended, it is an indication of who is wrong. Because God is not wrong. We are the ones who need to be corrected. May the Lord help us. I believe He's going to be gracious to us. Please come back and continue as we go into the role of elders and deacons and the Lord will help us to understand further. Let's pray. Father, I just thank You. Um, as difficult as a passage like this is, um, Lord, it was our responsibility to give it as You have put it and as the Apostle Paul so clearly taught it. And I pray, O oh God, that You will be merciful to us to accept it as Your truth for all ages and everywhere. Lord, forgive us when we've been obstinate and we've kind of wanted to do things our own way. Lord, we are foolish at times. Help us to see Your truth through Your Holy Spirit. Lord, bless our church. Help us to stand on this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.